everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my fantastic co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I am doing so great. I have been looking forward to this since we started the podcast, and I feel like our guest today is the perfect person to launch this Halloween series. So, yes, very good. That's what we're doing. We are taking a deep dive into the Halloween franchise, 41 years old, and still going really strong with two more movies announced coming out next year and the year after. Um, It's going to be the first of the big four that's going to get to 13 um, entries in the series, which take that, Jason Voorhees, you son of a bitch. Um, But it's amazing, like this little independent movie from 41 years ago launched perhaps the most recognizable franchise in horror movie history. And who are we joined with tonight? We have returning guest Nat Brimmer, who, uh, you know, we've gotten so much feedback about people enjoying the last time that Nat was on. So, I mean, very just ecstatic to have it back on. What's up, Nat? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me again. Uh, that's very flattering to know that people liked yeah. when I was on last time. It was a pleasure. And for first time listeners, if you want to go back and hear more of Nat, he was on our um, episode of Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, which, Jerry, if you can recall, like, what is it about that movie that sets it apart? <laughs> oh, my God. So, uh, well, what's funny is about what you're uh, you know, hinting at. Somebody actually made that reference on Twitter about the Blair Witch Project. Yes. And like, I was, you know, like if you take Jason out of the final chapter, it's still a very good coming of age film. That's what makes it so wonderful. And I forgot who referenced mm-hmm. that joke on Twitter, but thank you so much. Yes. Well, the other thing too, like we just got done our Blair Witch coverage, and it's like if you take the Blair Witch out of the Book of Shadows, we still have a really <laughs> shitty movie. So. <laughs> oh my but, god! Yeah, we're salty right now, but we're not here to talk about the Blair Witch Project or no. Friday the Thirteenth or the Scream series. We are going to dive deep into Halloween, and just to let our listeners know a little bit of what we have planned in the coming, really what should take us to the end of the year at this point, is not only our you know analysis of each entry, all 11 so far of the Halloween films, but we're going to have some special episodes on the music of the series where we'll be joined by some very special guests. We're still looking to line up. Um, just a retrospective on Deborah Hill and her contributions to the genre, um, not just for Halloween, but her overall partnership with John Carpenter and beyond. Um, and we're hoping on Halloween night to have like a very special commentary episode where Jerry and I will be joined by our kids to have them do a deep dive into, I think we agreed on Halloween for the return of Michael Myers. Yes, yes. It's so, a perfect movie for a commentary. Yeah. It was either that or Rob Zombie's H2. I just couldn't figure <laughs> what would be what would be more age appropriate for a night. What's funny is uh, I got married this weekend and I was just having small talk with, with my kids right before. And I have no idea where it came from. But my daughter goes, you know what, Dad? I really just hate Rob Zombie's Halloween. And I was like, where did you see that? I've never showed you that movie. Yeah. 
it's like now I have to, you know, call child welfare to see where, yes. <laughs> where she saw it. <laughs> oh. So, gentlemen, where should we begin? Do we begin at the very beginning or do we go back a little further? What would you guys okay. like to talk about first? Okay. Well, listeners of the podcast, we typically try to do a historical uh, thing first. We try to go, you know, beat by beat the making of the film and that kind of stuff. But with that being said, when you look at the Halloween series and especially the first film, Carpenter's, you know, 1978 film, it's all been said and done. You know, everything's been mentioned. You know, every stone has been turned. So what we want to do with this episode is take more of an analytical approach to the characters, the story, what it means to us, you know, and things that that we do. So this episode's going to be a little bit different. We're going to like go over the history a little bit, but for the most part, we're just going to hit the ground running on basically everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you think of Halloween, uh, you know, the background, I mean, obviously any fan knows that it comes basically from Erwin Yoblins and Mustafa Akkad. Mustafa Akkad, you know, was producing all these big budget films that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, every single day. So the idea to do this little slasher horror film where the entire budget would be what he was spending a day on another film. I mean, that's exciting. And, you know, Erwin Yoblins had this idea uh, that everyone around that time could relate to, you know, babysitters getting picked off. I mean, who hasn't, who hasn't had to babysit at some part of their life. So he came up with this idea to do a film called the babysitter murders. And, you know, John Carpenter had done, you know, someone's watching me, uh, uh, you know, assault. And pre- I think it's actually he did. Someone's watching me right after Halloween. If I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think assault and precinct. He did assault. Yeah, preceded yeah. Halloween. Uh, Dark Star and assault and precinct thirteen. Uh, you know, just a couple of movies. He had done short films before. I mean, even some of those. I mean, if you look at Captain Voyeur, the short film that he did in nineteen sixty nine, it has a lot of the same traits that Halloween did. You know, so Carpenter was still up and coming. He wasn't the John Carpenter we know today. Uh, you know, so Yoblins and company. They thought Carpenter was a good fit. They hired him. Uh, you know, Carpenter and his then girlfriend Deborah Hill, you know, wrote the film, which I, you know, we'll get into this more in the Deborah Hill episode. But I mean, I think a lot of the magic of Halloween also comes from Deborah Hill. Those mm-hmm. characters are so relatable because of, you know, her contributions. Uh, you know, and that's basically where it started. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think just looking in the backgrounds of the of the story. Uh, there's something really unique in uh, Halloween compared to a lot of uh, horror history before that, in that most horror films, especially starting out the Universal Monsters in the 30s and 40s, uh, drew from world folklore, drew from kind of centuries-old folklore mm-hmm. with vampires and werewolves and global kind of ghost stories. And Halloween is interestingly kind of a distinctly American movie in that almost all of the DNA, all of the f- kind of folklore and backstory that uh, sort of informs uh, the major elements of, of the plot really draw from, you know, American urban legends and uh, urban myth. Mm-hmm. I think well, I mean, in- just... Oh, go ahead. I think what's interesting, too, is like you mentioned the Universal Monsters, Nat, and... Halloween marks a shift from, and maybe even starting with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, Halloween marks a real shift in 
the type of killer that you see in horror movies. The biggest horror movie to that point had been The Exorcist, supernatural thriller. We were used to kind of monster movies, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, um, Demons, Poltergeist. Now Halloween shifts to an actual, like, a human killer. And it's interesting because right around the time of Halloween is basically when we start to see the emergence of thrill killers or serial killers. That's when they are kind like this kind of person that just seeks out and kills methodically um, is really entering the American lexicon. This is the time of, you know, a decade post Manson, but you have like the Zodiac killer, David Berkowitz, um, Ted Bundy. These are now people that are capturing the imagination of the American conscious. And all of a sudden the scariest thing you can imagine is no longer some mythical creature that lurks under your bed or in the dark at night, but an actual living, breathing human being that is just pure evil. That and I mean, any I think every person, I mean, kind of like what we're saying, the Blair Witch Project episodes where every town kind of has that, you know, myth, you know, that legend, whether it's the Jersey Devil and that kind of stuff. Well, I, I also think at the same time, every town has that really horrific, true crime thing to it. You know, growing up, uh, the Visalia Ransacker was really big in my hometown. Everyone talked about that. It was this man that kind of basically went into homes, terrorized stuff, you know, stole stuff and would leave creepy voicemails, you know, yeah, he killed somebody. He eventually relocated and became the golden state killer, which I mean, that case was recently, I think just closed, you know, a while back, you know, like that growing up, that was something that always terrified me. So when you get a film like Halloween, you know, yeah, Michael Myers in a lot of ways kind of, is the personification of evil, you know, and there there's a reason that the mask is being worn, you know, it is this faceless evil. But with that being said, it, it is very much a human. And I think that that is so terrifying. And what Carpenter and Deborah Hill did is they took that little seed of an idea, that babysitter's murder idea that Yoblins had and made something that every town, every small town could identify with, you know, walking down the street by yourself. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but walking down the street as a kid, I would always look over my shoulders and think I would see something, you know, it's, it's kind of like imagining things out there. You hear something in the middle of the night in your house, you think someone's out there. So the idea of someone really being out there and especially in the first film, having no motive other than a girl dropped a key off at the wrong place and somebody became obsessed with her. There's no sister angle. There's no senior citizen cult driving Michael Myers in the first film. He's very much a deviant, just stalking people. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and I think, um, I think like you said, with uh, you know, the local history, the local stories, I think a lot of these, uh, urban legends were stories, especially in the 70s through the 60s, uh, uh, kind of originating in the late 40s, were stories that every town had. Uh, okay. They were the modern kind of grim fairy tales. And there's a lot of you know explicit uh, DNA for that in Halloween and that, you know, you have the basic plot being, you know, a madman has escaped from the local mental institution and he is coming back towards town. And there are these teenagers that are becoming aware of it and they are in danger. And that is, you know, 
the urban myth of, of the hook, and that is also the plot of Halloween. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, the urban legend of the babysitter who is, you know, tormented, who has these children that, you know, she checks on that she has to ensure are safe. And that is also the plot of Halloween. And then you have just these uh, weird harassing phone calls from Michael and you have, you know, you know, someone hiding in the backseat, literally how uh, Annie dies. But ultimately, I think it's really interesting that we talk about, you know, the uh, kind of supernatural traditions of horror and the notions of true crime in the 70s, because I actually think that Halloween is really more of a, a middle point between the two things because mm-hmm. it is about a, a masked madman. But I also think that it is uh, an, a, a kind of explicitly supernatural movie. I think it's kind of almost a haunted house movie where, you know, these, the spectral figure just happens to be flesh and blood, which mm-hmm. is really just semantics. I think, you know, uh, there's, so much to it that is kind of Lovecraftian and that Michael, you know, may, may be a person, but he is much more of an, an entity than he is ever personified as a man. And I think that's ultimately what has always kind of fascinated me about it is I that, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a sort of a, a supernatural movie that tricks you into thinking it isn't for the bulk of its runtime. Well, what's interesting is you get that iconic opening scene. You know, you're basically following this murderer from their point of view, everything leading up to the murder, you know, stalking, you know, the woman, the teenager and her boyfriend making out and having the quickest sex ever. Uh, You know, someone walks in the back door, goes in there, the guy walks out, whoever the murderer is walks in, you know kills the woman so you're on the edge of your seat the whole time thinking what is going on who is this person you get outside parents pull up and it's a little kid so right from the beginning is the gut punch and it is and i think to your point now you're you're right it is both of those because Mm -hmm. yes michael myers is flesh and blood but at the same time i've always thought that he kind of ceases to be you know quote-unquote human the moment that opening scene is over, you know, once that mask comes on, I don't consider him just a a person, you know, I I think it's definitely just pure evil. And I feel like there is some form of a supernatural element to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think for sure. I think uh, what's so endearing about Michael in the original is that he's, uh, He's human. There is, you know, there is a, a Michael Myers, you know, who killed his sister when he was six years old with brown hair and brown eyes. But he is also, in addition to that, something else. And we don't ever get to know what that else is or why. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's even like described in the script. I mean, yeah. you know, after after a while, like he's not even re- like referred to as Michael Myers anymore. I mean, it's the shape. Yeah. You know, and what does that mean? You know, yeah. other than the shape of evil, yeah. you know, he's, he isn't a person. I mean, even Loomis says it during, you know, the drive with, with the nurse at the beginning, you know? Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't speak 
of Michael as like flesh and blood. Loomis doesn't consider Michael a person anymore. He just considers him evil. I mean, and even, you know, the, uh, the TV cut of the first film, you know, you have that kind of, I think unnecessary scene with like Loomis kind of pleading to, you know, the board not to, you know, yeah. What, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. What I really don't like about that scene is that it explicitly contradicts, uh, you know, the, the rest of the movie because Mm -hmm. it was shot several years later and it was really kind of a rush job, but that is Michael like immediately, you know, after that is very early on in his seeing, or that's Loomis very early on in his seeing Michael uh, saying, you know, this boy is evil and he needs to be locked up. Whereas Loomis states, and I think it's so important that he spent seven years or he spent eight years trying to reach uh, Michael before he actually realized what was truly going on and what was actually wrong with this kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike, I'm curious, you know, as somebody that is in the therapy field, uh, Loomis as a therapist. So I definitely want to get into that in a little bit. I think I want to hold off a bit until we talk a little. No, not, not so much. Like, uh, I don't, I don't mean like go off on that. I mean, as far as like what Nat just said, having spent eight years trying to reach someone as somebody that's in therapy, is there a point, is there a point where you kind of say hands in the air? So one of the things about counseling is the most important thing is the relationship between the counselor and the client. It doesn't matter so much what your treatment modality is with the client. I mean, it does to an extent, but the most important thing is that that person walking in the door feels like they can trust you and build a relationship with you and build rapport with you. There comes a point in time as a counselor, and it's actually in uh, our ethical guidelines as a mental health, as a licensed mental health counselor. One of my ethical guidelines is to basically, if counseling's not working, if the relationship isn't there, it's my actual duty to cut the client off, to say, I am not the right person for you. You would be better suited for somebody else. So, so eight years is kind of uh, dragging it out. Like, should, yeah, should in, in reality, should the cord have been cut? A lot sooner. Absolutely. That cord should have been cut probably seven years prior to that. I mean, to be quite honest, like we're going to get into it, I think, in a lot more detail. Like I've I'm currently writing a book where I'm diagnosing all these characters from horror movies and how I would treat them. And I've got a whole chapter on Dr. Loomis and Michael Myers and some things. And as a counselor, I would like Michael is nonverbal. Like we never hear him speak. And Loomis is trying traditional talk therapy with him, which trying to do talk therapy with your average functioning six-year-old is very, very difficult because children are mostly all on the surface. Um, they're, they feel what they feel. They feel it very strongly, but they're not really able to process all the emotions underneath of that. So just doing traditional talk therapy on its own with a normally functioning child is difficult, if not impossible. Um, You need to get creative. You need to bring in art therapy, music therapy, games. A lot of times that I'm counseling a child as young, like my youngest client is, I think, six years old. And a lot of it is basically child-centered play therapy where they lead the session. I observe and I pick up motives traits and characteristics through their way they play Mm -hmm. 
And then over time, they empower themselves to work out a lot of their issues with you doing minimal guidance whatsoever. And that's one form of treatment. But especially with a nonverbal child, spending eight years doing traditional talk therapy is not going to be a very effective. And we'll get more into that when we talk more about the character of Dr. Loomis, but that's kind of my opening salvo there. I also think that, I mean, going on that for a second, I also think like back when the film was made and in the timeline of the actual story, I mean, maybe maybe things like art therapy, like they weren't around as much. I mean, my yeah, wife, my wife is going, my wife's going to college now to become an art therapist. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's had to write these whole papers just defending it, mm-hmm. you know, because even today it's used. Yeah. But even today it's kind of looked down on. Right. In, in ways that it shouldn't be. Right. But I mean, and there's a difference. Right. Like I use art in therapy, but I cannot call myself an art therapist because I am not actually trained and certified or licensed in art therapy. But what I can say is I use like art in therapy. I use, I'm not a play therapist yet. I'm going for my certification in that, but I can say I use play in therapy. A lot of these things are relatively new, although by the time this movie was out, you were moving away from typical psychotherapy and Freud and Jung and analyzing dreams, and you were moving much more towards like a person-centered approach or a cognitive mm-hmm. approach, um, which may have been... I don't, I don't think any real talk therapy would have been effective with Michael. Mm-hmm. I, I think that when it comes to the character of Dr. Loomis, I mean, from the first scene that you're introduced to him, I, I think, you know, and I could be wrong, but this is how I've taken it. I think that a lot of people graze over the fact that he's terrified and scared himself throughout the entire movie. I mean, he's fidgety. He's all over the place, you know, during that car ride because he's expecting the worst to happen, you know. And I yeah. think he's the only person that has that belief that this isn't going to go right, even though, you know, all intents and purposes, it should. You know, it should be just an easy transfer, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think my very different read on Loomis comes, just comes from my read of the movie, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, if this film, I, I absolutely agree. If this movie has any other ending than the ending it has, Loomis is the worst doctor in history. But I think he's not because he doesn't have a patient. I don't think that Michael Myers can be the shape, you know, and be mentally ill. I think Michael Myers has to be like unclassifiable. And I think. Part of my, the key of my read on Loomis is that absolutely nothing he says through the entire movie is figurative. It's mm-hmm. all completely literal that this, this person is a, a, a thing, is this force that, that is out there that is not even, you know, human, at least all the way. And that's why, you know, when Michael is gone at the end, which Pleasant's played so brilliantly, he's not remotely surprised. But I think part of the intensity of the character really, as you kind of said, comes from the fact that at the start of this movie, we are picking up with a character at the absolute end of his rope. Yeah. Because Loomis, to me, uh, is basically the Greek myth of Cassandra. You know, Cassandra 
was gifted with sight by Apollo and saw the fall of Troy and tried to warn everyone of what was going to happen and nobody listened to her. And she just had to sit back and watch it happen. Loomis has spent so long trying to warn everyone, trying to go through all the proper channels to say that exactly what is about to happen was going to happen. And now that it's here, there's absolutely nothing he can do to stop it. I I think that there was a moment in Loomis's career that, you know, sure, he should have, you know, tapped out years before. But I think that there was a point in his career, you know, seven, eight years in where he said, you know what, this isn't like you said, this isn't my patient anymore. You know, and I think after that, it became a mission to stop Michael rather than to help him. So he could totally be looked at as the worst doctor ever. And to a point, I agree. And even there's that behind the scenes interview that was going around online this week that made me laugh so much where a a British reporter was interviewing Donald Pleasance on the set of Halloween. And the whole time Donald Pleasance is basically talking shit about the script, saying that nobody says these things, you know, it's a little Mm -hmm. out there and, you know, it's, it's dramatic, but I think more than just being a bad doctor, I think he almost becomes Ahab, you know, yeah, for like sure. in a lot of in a lot of ways. Most of the movie, I mean, we never get to see Loomis try to help Michael. I mean, that's stuff that was kind of like really prevalent in Rob Zombie's Halloween. But in Carpenter's, we never see Loomis, the, the, the doctor. We see Loomis, the kind of savior, you know, the guy who's trying to warn everyone that no one listens to. And at the end, like you said. You know, he played it so brilliantly. And it isn't a look of shock. It's a look of shit. This really happened. Nobody listened. Well, here we are. Yeah, I think he made I think this character essentially made a conscious decision, realizing what he had in Michael that eight years into that relationship, he was like, I'm not a doctor anymore. If I'm going to continue this case, you know, I I'm literally not doing my job anymore because you know he's by this point realized that this isn't you know any any kind of of human being he's ever encountered that this is you know an actual you know manifestation of evil that this is a a supernatural force inside of a child's body and that absolutely nobody else is going to believe that absolutely everyone else is going to turn a blind eye to what this kid is capable of to the point that, uh, um, you know, things might even go worse so that Loomis basically sacrifices his, his life and, and his happiness and his profession in staying on as Michael's doctor to basically give his life over to acting as a gatekeeper. And then on Halloween, 1978, even, even failing at that. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of Rob Zombie's Halloween much at all, but one of the things I did like about it was, uh, and I'm probably paraphrasing because, I mean, I've seen that movie probably under five times, but there's a scene where Loomis is talking to Michael uh, right around the time that Michael's about to escape. He's sitting down with the kind of grown-up Michael with those you know, handmade masks, and he kind of tells him that you know, basically his relationship with Michael outlasted marriages. You know, like this person dedicated everything of themselves to at first 
trying to help the per- the you know the patient. And then you know, like we're saying, after that, it was very much a gatekeeper responsibility. You know, he knew he knew what Michael was. Mm-hmm. He knew what Michael was capable of. And at, at a certain point, as not only a doctor, but as a human being, if you know that someone or something is pure evil, I mean, I think it's your duty to kind of stop it. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, I love Dr. Loomis for that. Yeah. You know, I, I like I said, I mean, we never got to see him as a doctor. I've always seen him as like, you know, kind of, you know, the savior of everything. Mm-hmm. Well, you see how he's seen by his colleagues, even from Jump Street. Um, he's dismissed out of hand. Like, there's no way that this patient could have, could cause any harm, even after he escapes. And this is a, a thread that continues in the first Halloween. In Halloween 2, he's called back to the hospital because they don't want him in the field searching for Michael. In Halloween 4, his position is termed mostly ceremonial if he's seen as kind of an old fool and in halloween five to your point i think that's where he becomes a full-on captain ahab that i think it's halloween five and six is when you really see just the devastating effect that this two decade actually 25 year relationship between loomis and michael that's where you see the real deterioration uh, in Loomis's own mental psyche. Um, oh, totally. And I mean, I can understand why all of his colleagues would look at him that way, too. I oh, mean, yeah. in the real world, in the real world, if you have a doctor saying this person's pure evil, they're not human anymore. You know, I would laugh at that person, too. Right. You know, but that, it, like that's what is so enthralling about the film to me is it's set in the real world. It's yeah. not set in like a world like full of ghosts and demons and all that stuff. It is very much right now, right here. And there is an unstoppable evil in our town. And I think that like what Nat said, it does kind of, it's, it is kind of like on that fine line of reality and supernatural. And I think that like what Carpenter and Deborah Hill brought to that, they took that familiarity of, you know, being a teenager you know, uh, babysitting, that kind of stuff, being scared. You know, Lori, Lori is very much a scared, not troubled, but kind of, you know, low self-esteem. She doesn't think any boys will like her. You know, she she's just not really comfortable in her own skin. So taking that and putting that pure evil, I just think it's the perfect combination. And, you know, we talked at the Blair Witch, in the Blair Witch episodes, uh, Mike and I kind of agreed that, while the Blair Witch is probably, you know, the godfather of found footage stuff, it was paranormal activity that really made found footage a thing. Yeah. And while yeah. we had films like Peeping Tom or, you know, Black Christmas with God, that movie is great. I think Halloween was the cultural just huge like zeitgeist that really made this thing big you yeah. know and like anytime someone mentions the the effect and the lasting thing of halloween there's always people that want to pull that that plain tom or peeping tom and black christmas card and i understand that but this film was the first one that took all of those themes that maybe we had seen once or twice before and brought it just right into your face and in every home i mean michael myers now he's kind of like the washington monument of horror mm-hmm yeah, yeah I, if, I think uh, Halloween really kicked off 
the slasher trend, despite the fact that there had been, you know, slashers, certainly basic uh, slashers before, in that the movies that followed in uh, 1980 and 1981 uh, most explicitly borrowed so many individual elements. It wasn't just that this was a movie with the same kind of setup. It was you need the the, kind, the same sort of heroine. You need the same kind of backstory. You need that to, to be a thing in the past that is coming back in the present. And there's so many very specific elements. And also what I think that a lot of those films got wrong. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of some of them. I mean, you know, Friday the 13th, The Prowler. I mean, all those movies, they're great. But I think where a lot of the lesser ones that tried to kind of ape Halloween didn't realize is what made Halloween so great. It was a perfect stew of ingredients. I mean, the other films didn't have John Carpenter, Deborah Hill. I mean, Mm -hmm. Dean Cundey's cinematography is great. It has some of the best lighting I've ever seen in a horror film. I mean, that the, the transportation scene at the beginning, you know, or, or Loomis with those like green lights, you know, like everything. I mean, the score. I mean, we can have a whole episode just on this. I mean, I guess we are. But I mean, it's it's just the perfect ingredient. I mean, and I I know this whole episode and the whole series, I'm just going to say over and over. But I feel like Halloween out of every film ever created has the most perfect ingredients all around. There isn't a weak spot in the film. And even little like mess ups, I find charming. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when Nick Castle as Michael Myers in his like, you know, hospital gown jumps on top of the car and you see a painted wrench on his palm, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I laugh every single time I see that, but it never once takes me out of the film. Yeah. Well, I think we need to look, I mean, you kind of hit it a little bit on the head, What's going to come after Halloween are a lot of B-movies with B-movie talent. And, you know, those movies are enjoyable, but they're not John Carpenter. John Carpenter is an A-list director that just happens to make B-movies. Yeah, he wasn't at the time either. Like, you know, this was a very, very early thing for him. Correct. But we, you know, but this was his proving ground. This was him getting a chance to make a name for himself. Like that, a that talent was always there. But now he had the opportunity to actually spread his wings and do something with it. And you, I think, he went on to prove he's, you know, of his ilk, probably the best of his generation overall. But he's someone that traffics in B movies. But he has the chops of like an A list filmmaker. You have Almost. Dean you have Dean Cundy who's gonna go on to make you know he's gonna go on to lens Back to the Future. He's gonna go on to do Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's Camp gonna Rock. do Camp there you go. Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park, Apollo thirteen. And then you have even though she was not known at the time, Jamie Lee Curtis is also gonna go on to be one of the more decorated actresses of her generation. So you have these persons, and of course Donald Pleasance, who would have been your established actor at this point, who had been in Bond films, he'd been acting with Sir Alec Guinness, like he's of his generation, just a very well-respected performer. So you're not, not getting what you see in the slasher movies that follow, which is usually a lot of one-and-done performers. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one thing that sets it apart, you know, I think it's as much as I love slasher films. And, and in fact, this this weekend, uh, which is weird because I keep referencing my wedding and it should be about like, you know, people being married. But I keep telling all these horror stories. <laughs> but like 
right after we were all like at the wedding right after we were saying okay so uh what's your favorite subgenre of horror you know all the guests were talking about this stuff mm-hmm. and you know i i said slashers i love slasher films and while i'm a huge fan of them a lot of them in fact the majority of them have characters that you just don't give a shit about and i don't think there's a single character in halloween that you don't either relate to or at least sympathize with. I mean, growing up, I was very much Laurie Strode. I mean, everything about that character was just me, you know, and I surrounded myself with people like Annie or, you know, Linda. We've all known these people or some of us have been these people. Each of these characters, they weren't kind of caricatures like a lot of slasher films would go on to be, you know, they were all very unique and very uniquely relatable. I mean, Tommy, who wasn't that scared little boy telling everyone that he saw something around the corner, even if it wasn't true, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I, I just think, like, that's one of the great things that works about the film is that every character is relatable. I mean, it's very much the final chapter of that series. I will say, though, that I don't give a shit about Bob. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bob's just trying to get a nut. <laughs> Fuck Bob. Right? Those glasses. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so a little bit more on on Dr. Loomis, you know, because I, I now let's kind of get in before we dive into Lori and Annie um and Sheriff Bracken. Um, you know, a little bit I, I see what you're I, I kinda get your point, Nat, about what you're saying about He's a force for evil. He's a supernatural being. But at the same time, he's a character that is in a very real black and white world. Like a, He's in a very – he's in our reality at this point. Haddonfield, Illinois is a small suburban town. Smithfields Grove is a place that houses the mentally ill. So that's the hand I think that we're dealt with overall. Like they just don't know what they're facing, and it takes – right. Dr. Loomis, eight years to come to grips with what he's facing. Well, I think that's a huge key to the character is mm-hmm. that I think part of Loomis's frustration is that he knows that even mm-hmm. he would react to him the way everyone else reacts to him. Mm-hmm. The only people who know anything super, remotely supernatural are, is happening in this movie are Loomis and Michael Myers. Right. And they're... You know, and I don't even know if Myers would call Loomis an adversary. I don't think he has regard for anybody. Mm-hmm. That's I what know. I that's that's one of the things. And we'll talk in detail about that when we get to David Gordon Green's film. But that's one of the things that I loved so much about 2018's Halloween, that it was very much in line with the first film. Michael doesn't care, mm-hmm. you know. Like the whole other, the whole rest of the series, Michael's going after Lori, mm-hmm. going after Jamie for all these reasons. In 2018, the only reason they come into contact is because basically he gets an Uber Lo- there. He gets an Uber there basically from his doctor, yeah. and Lori chases his ass for most of the movie. Right. He doesn't care. And Mike and I kind of agreed on the fact that trauma does not care who you no. are. Yeah. And that's, I think, that, that little seed, that genesis of that thought was born in John Carpenter's Halloween. Laurie meant nothing to Michael other than he was at his house. She dropped the key. First person he saw, you know, his urges led her. And that is so scary. 
Yeah, I think there there's for sure um, an obsession with her in the original film. It's just we don't get to know why. You know, we don't mm-hmm. get any insight into that. And I think a lot of people were, you know, pissed that Laurie was even kind of brought back for the new sequels because if if he's not after uh, if he's not after her, you know, why does she keep coming back? But I, I think uh, a major point to Laurie's character in the original and part of what defines her her fear and her anxiety in David Gordon Green's film is that someone relentlessly attacked her and mm-hmm. she never got to find out why and she will never get to find out why and i think that that's one of the things that i am so excited about with halloween kills that's being Mm -hmm. filmed right now they're bringing back all these characters from the first film to kind of put what they dealt with under the microscope you know like like we go back to the beginning of this episode every town has that kind of town trauma Mm -hmm. and i'm so excited to see how it affected Lindsay, how it affected bracket i mean lonnie i've wanted Lonnie to at least be addressed since the first film. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about the character of Lonnie, Loomis is a walking ball of anxiety the entire first film. He's yep. always on edge. I mean, that window, you know, he basically almost pulls a gun out on bracket, you know. But the one scene that we see Loomis break away from that is when he just gets such a satisfaction from scaring Lonnie and his friends. And yeah. I can't help but laugh every time I see that smile. It's kind of yeah. like in Halloween 2 at the beginning where, you know, Loomis, uh, that neighbor comes out, you know, I've been scared to death, you know. And then mm-hmm. Loomis looks at him like, I'm going to beat your ass. You don't know <laughs> what death is. No, he yeah. has a look like you better get the hell back in your right. house because I'm about to like pistol whip you. I love these little breaks of the anxiety that Loomis gives us in the first film and especially – especially the first film. I mean, yeah. it's fun to see him smile and get kind of like witty and play pranks on these people. But, yeah. yeah. So a, a problem I have with Loomis as a doctor, and again, the character is, is fantastic. And we talked a little bit about how, I know we talked about how basically after eight years, he should not be treating Michael really after a year, he should have handed that case over to someone that may have been more qualified or maybe had more experience in that area. And who knows, maybe there was nobody. So I'll, I'll give you that. Maybe there was just nobody else qualified to work with him, or maybe there was a team of doctors working around the clock with Michael and Loomis was just like the lead overall. When Michael escapes and Loomis rightfully guess, rightfully guesses, he's going back to Haddonfield and talks to Sheriff Bracken, he has a duty to warn the people of Haddonfield what the potential danger is. And he tells Sheriff Bracken, no, let's not let the word get out mm-hmm. about who's potentially here because we don't want a lynch mob on our hands. So well, that's that, a, that happens, a, though. Like, he's it, right. That happens. As soon as they find out in the second film, I mean, they're throwing rocks and it's because, yeah. I mean, even yeah. in the fourth film, I mean, they shoot an innocent person because yeah, of it. Exactly. That's exactly but, the kind of thing he's warning against. But would you, if the town knew, if you could, or like, hey, look, we're canceling Halloween. Everybody get in. Everyone lock your doors. We're on lockdown at that point. To have the night go normally as planned, the, the, the riot happens because at this point you have three, maybe five people that are already dead. 
mm-hmm. this point. So there's already, you're already seeing the aftermath. You're seeing the ambulances. You're seeing the bodies wheeled out. You have a sheriff that lost his daughter and that is essentially removed from the picture at the start of yeah. Halloween too. So if you were to able to say like, no, we're going on lockdown, Sheriff, the police is going to be roaming the street. We're going to get the state force in here. You have a duty to warn. Like that's actually a real thing. It's a real ethical guideline. There was a um, a Supreme Court case, excuse me, Tassaroff uh, versus the University of California, where basically a counselor speaking to one of his clients. Mm-hmm. The client said, "When I leave, I'm going to kill my girlfriend." The uh, counselor did not take it seriously. He reported it to the campus police, but that was it. He had a duty to warn the potential person who was going to be harmed, who had to stand risk of harm. This person then left and went and killed his girlfriend after the session, and the counselor was held liable for it because he had an ethical responsibility to warn persons that were in immediate danger they could be harmed. Now, this is a little bit different because obviously he can't go door to door, knock on everyone's door and say, hey, there's potentially a mass madman on the loose. But I think he significantly underplayed the danger that Myers represented. And if it had been handled in a better way, you could have saved some lives that night. Well, okay, but is it, forgetting is it, the fact that, uh, that he, he, he makes that call to not uh you know to not try and create a lynch mob much later the first thing he does upon finding uh you know the the fact that michael has you know has you know killed a uh, tow truck driver Mm -hmm. is call ahead to the haddonfield police and literally Mm -hmm. say uh there's a maniac coming you have to be ready for him you have to be ready for him Mm -hmm. and they they don't listen they don't do shit about it so he has to go and you know pull them out in person well that and i mean yeah loomis told bracket let's not do that but is it Loomis's fault or is it Brackett's? Because Brackett is most definitely the sheriff. I mean, it, it is ultimately, his, ultimately, his, it ultimately yeah, it ultimately lies in the hands of Sheriff Brackett. But at the same time, this is someone who is probably going to listen to what the man's doctor has to say. Like, what do you think? Like, you know, he's not, what do you he know? Doesn't, he doesn't ever do that. He doesn't ever <laughs> listen to a single thing Loomis says. He mostly just complains the whole time. So I don't know, like I, I, you know, like I've said before, like my issues with Loomis as a doctor, not as a character, because I think it's one of the best characters in horror movie history. You know, my issues with him as a doctor is, A, he did not use any sort of treatment modality that would actually be effective with a client like Michael. Now, to be quite honest, somebody with a personality disorder like Michael has, would be very difficult to treat. Uh, So there's really, a lot of times, all you can do is medicate and and hope for the best. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to treat somebody that is going to have antisocial personality disorder, which which is what I would say that Michael has. He has all the hallmarks of it because they don't recognize anyone's feelings outside their own. They barely recognize their own feelings. The world barely exists to them. They make their own rules. They make their own laws and don't recognize the laws or the rules 
of the society they live in, aside from how can they avoid being caught when they're committing infractions overall. But number one, that wasn't really a plan in place to treat him. It seemed like that was going to work with someone nonverbal like him. Number two, he should have handed the case over to somebody when it was proven he was just was not going to be effective in working with him overall. Number three, I think he had a duty to warn the town. And finally, like, I don't know, as a clinician, I'm not allowed to shoot my patients six times in session. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I understand that. But at the same time, I mean, if it comes down to somebody being murdered, which I mean, Loomis, if he hadn't walked in, Lori would have been murdered. I mean, after right. those people, doctor or not. I mean, if I was a doctor, I'd shoot my patient in the right between the fucking eyes if it meant saving somebody's life, yeah. you know? You probably would lose your license. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Probably so, wouldn't be like practicing right. for, you know, six other movies. Right. And this is strictly coming from a, a counseling standpoint. Things I would not do with my patients. Shoot them six times. <laughs> Yeah. That's one of the first questions they ask on the national certification. Have you, you ever shoot shot your patient your six, times? six times? And no. again, I, I absolutely agree with, with all of that. If the movie is, is not as supernatural as it is spelled out to be at the end, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with, with Michael actually being, you know, a, a, a also a supernatural mm -hmm. force, I think, a huge part of Loomis's character was realizing as a psychologist that what he was dealing with was not psychology. Well, I also and, feel like that is that is one of the brilliant things about the film is the whole time we kind of don't believe Loomis either. Yeah, we exactly. think he's just a flesh and blood killer. And that's what that opening scene sets us up for. Yeah. And at the end, it's not a cliffhanger episode or uh, ending leading to a sequel, even though we got them. It is very much you, the audience, were wrong. This yeah. is evil. This is unstoppable evil jokes on you guys. Yeah, and it's really like it's such a hardcore like punk ending to just be like, oh, hey, yeah, uh, he's not dead. Uh, he doesn't he probably appear to be later wounded. that night. <laughs> we still hear him breathing. Uh, he's probably in your fucking car. <laughs> it's, and I think that ending is so perfect. I think that the heavy breathing yeah. and then you're just revisiting the locations you've already been throughout the course of the movie. And it's just that idea that evil is everywhere, all at once, all around you and unavoidable. And it's just going to pick and choose its moments to let itself out, and there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's such I, a wonderful and nihilistic ending that's really on par with the, the nihilistic ending of movies like The Thing uh, and Prince of Darkness, but maybe doesn't get the same read on the amount of uh, how nihilistic it is simply because you have other movies that follow it up in the years that come that continue the story. Well, it doesn't allow you as a viewer the chance to know when it's going to strike. And I mm -hmm. also that's another thing I loved about David Gordon Green's film. There's that whole scene where Michael's just walking through Haddonfield going from house to house. Yep. And there's a couple moments where he has the opportunity to kill people and he's just doesn't feel led to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that unpredictability, I think, that makes Carpenter's film so scary to me. And it, it is. It's a film that I've seen. I mean, I'm not exaggerating at least a few hundred times. Like, I think yeah. I watch it at least once a week, which, I mean, my wife hates, my kids love. 
But um, I, I think after a while, she's like, can we not watch a Halloween film? Like even more than Friday the 13th. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I mean, with that being said, it still scares the living shit out of me every single time because that plays on what I'm scared of. I, you know, I'm scared of looking out my window and seeing this dude in a mask just stand beside a clothes, a clothes, a clothespin or, you know, clothesline, a laundry thing. You know, I'm, I'm scared of walking down the street and seeing someone that could potentially kill me. Even as yeah. a 38 year old man, that still scares me. And I think Carpenter and Hill. Uh, with Dean Cundey's cinematography, with Carpenter's score, with Jamie Lee Curtis's great performance, I think that it all plays on that fear that a lot of us have. And the other amazing thing about, just as you said, rewatching it so often, is that I've seen it probably more than almost any other movie. Mm-hmm. And there's still things that I can pick up and notice about it over time and kind of see in different ways, or just things that I even hadn't seen before. Like, uh, you, you, you take like the scene where Lori sees Michael in her backyard, you know, among the, the clothesline mm-hmm. and that's scary. That's viscerally scary the first time that you see it. But then eventually you rewatch it and you're like, oh, that's where he gets the, the sheet that he uses later in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then you watch it again and again and you realize that Lori's going to that window because she didn't leave it open. She recognizes that that window is open and she goes to close it and there's the man right, you know, down below it. So you're like, oh, my God, there's also the fact that he was in her bedroom. Yeah. Like, I, I never picked up on that. Mm-hmm. No, very much so. There's these little things that and I, I think a lot of filmmakers, there's like little accidents like that. But I think with Carpenter and Hill, I think every little thing like that was planned. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the details in Halloween, I think surpass the details in most films. And I just, I don't just mean genre films. I mean, films in general, like there's a, an attention to detail in every little thing. And what's funny is, you know, Halloween, like Friday the 13th three, there, there is some happy accidents that did wonders for the series. I mean, you know, Jason could have had any mask. Mm-hmm. They went with the hockey mask and the, you know, the rest was history. Mm-hmm. Halloween. We get the most, in my opinion, the most terrifying character ever committed to film wearing a fucking William Shatner mask. Yeah. Like, and, like it's so interesting. And the mask is perfect in their representation of what Michael is, because, you know, mm-hmm. you look at the shape when you look at something that is the idea and the form of a human being, but isn't quite that blank face mask is it's perfect. It is mm-hmm. literally like the idealized, like perfection of that concept. Mm-hmm. Absolutely I, agree with that. I mean, you just have this blank soulless husk that really is one purpose in front of you. And I think the mask, you know, although over, over time and over movies, the mask, depending on which you're, which one you're watching can be a little bit ridiculous. Sometimes they don't quite get to look right, but that first mask is, is absolute perfection. Oh, it's great. I mean, it it has enough texture to look like a face, but it's also in so many ways, just blank. And what I love about it is, you know, Loomis is warning people nonstop, but they're so oblivious. I mean, how many times 
are, are, you know, Loomis went off on the phone to Brackett, warning him, like Nat said, and everything. But, you know, Michael breaks into the, the hardware store, steals a mask, some knives, and some rope. Why isn't, like, why doesn't Brackett immediately go, oh, shit, you know? Like, he plays yeah. it off. Like, it plays up, like, oh, it's just some pranks. I don't know about you, but I don't remember the last time someone in my city, as a prank, busted into a hardware store, stole some knives, rope, and a mask. Like, the writing's on the wall with that. Yeah. yeah. And there's also, there's a funny moment in that that I just, oh, God, I love so much, where Loomis and Brackett are talking, and in the background, you see Michael Myers at an intersection, looking left, <laughs> looking right, before he turns. And he <laughs> just drives like, right by them. He yeah. just drives by them. And it parallels, you know, you know, Loomis, the, Michael's, you know, you know, looking to cross to essentially cross the street, and that, or and then Loomis is you know looking at the exact right angle to to miss the car uh, mm-hmm. as it drives past, and I think um, yeah, I think Brackett is hilarious in that he's just like, well, all they took was all they took was a couple of knives, <laughs> but I think so much of that stems from the fact that nothing has fucking happened here for fifteen years. No, yeah, it's it. a very small, dopey town, you know, where you would not expect anything bad could ever happen. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, and this is an interesting idea, do you think that Lori singing that song is something that drew Michael to her? Um, I mean, even the lyrics to that song, I mean, it almost seems like an like a, a invitation without her knowing it. It's true. It's, it can definitely be right as that too. It's also, you know, maybe he was like, that doesn't sound familiar. I've never heard that fucking song before. <laughs> I think she just made that up. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I think something about Lori piqued Michael's interest at the end of yeah. the day. And that was yeah. just another little small piece in a much larger puzzle. Uh, and I think, I love the reading of the first movie and Jerry, you're reading that this is all random happenstance that sometimes bad things just follow you and there's no explanation for it. There's no rhyme or reason. It's not fair, but that's just the way that the world is sometimes. I think that's well, such I, a wonderful reading. Of well, that and I, I think that, and I think that I, especially in this day and age, everything has to be explained, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one thing that just drives me nuts as as a viewer of any film. The the need for explanation, where I think especially in the horror genre, uh, there's this pressure for everyone to explain away everything. And I think that's something that really made Rob Zombie's first film suffer, uh, the his first Halloween film. I don't want to know that the reason Michael Myers kills people is because he's a KISS fan who didn't get to go trick-or-treating. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that killed it for me. I don't want to think that, oh, Michael's Michael got shot in the eyes twice. He's definitely blind. He got burnt to a crisp, but he wakes up and he's totally chill just because he has a niece. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. Like, as much I, I say that with all the love in my heart for, towards Halloween 4 because I love that movie as a film so much. Yeah. But... I think that first film, it just gives you everything as far as like uh, aesthetics, uh, performances. I mean, just a tone without feeling the need to like 
spoon feed every explanation to you, and that's what makes it work. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, you know is is absolutely key. That it is you know what makes it so uh, rewatchable, and what makes me still love it after all this time is that it is such a scaled back movie that it can be be read and be interpreted in any number of ways. And, uh, you know, I think it speaks to, again, the, the, the blankness of that mask, which is that, you know, that that mask is just a, a blank canvas that you can project any of your own fears onto. You, you bring to the table so much of what you're scared of in Halloween. Mm-hmm. No, most definitely. And I think whereas uh, the later films in the series made Michael kind of the the kind of central figure, you know, definitely in the forefront, kind of like the, you know, the, the Freddy films and, you know, the Friday the 13th films did. I think what the charm, where the charm is in the first film is the kind of supporting characters that are mm-hmm. affected by, by Michael's terror, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Laurie. It's so easy to just get on board with that character because she's a good person. You know, she's yeah. just inherently good, you know, and yeah. a lot of times you get, you get these kind of protagonists in films that you kind of just can't stand as people, you know, like I've seen so many film like slasher films, especially where it's just like, man, kill this person already. And even in the Halloween series, there isn't a single character in Halloween six that I don't want to get butchered, you know? Especially the brother, because God fucked him. But uh, but the first film, I don't want to see any of those people die. I mean, yeah, Linda could be a little irritating at times, but who doesn't have that friend? You know, yeah, exactly. You know, and he's kind of like all over the place and kind of like snappy. But that comes with the territory of having friends. I don't want any of those people to die, except kind of what Nat said. I'm I'm kind of cool with Bob. Yeah. What's 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 wrong with Bob? Well, first of all. Bob has that egregious pedophile joke, right? <laughs> that should be worth it alone. But he's uh, it was the seventies, though, man. These things were. <laughs> you know, just said, dude, let's go inside and take Lindsay's clothes off. It was all yeah. it was all key parties and pedophile jokes back then, man. That's all it was. Yeah. I mean, that's where all the parents were in Halloween. They were all at a neighborhood key party. You know, that's what was going down. Yeah, where were they? Except Bracket. Bracket's the only one that's just like out and about. Bracket was getting cuckolded by Stop. So, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, you've hit it, Jerry, that part of the magic of Halloween is, you know, it's not Michael Myers' movie. He's the shark from Jaws in this movie. This is very much Loomis's movie and very much Laurie's movie overall. And because of, I think the characters of Laurie, Linda, um, Tommy, Annie are so well crafted that as an audience member, you get sucked in. Nat, we started the show with you reminding the audience that everyone has been a babysitter at one point. You either had it as an after school or weekend job, or your parents just had you watch your younger brother or sister. But at some point, anyone watching this movie was most likely a babysitter. And I think it's one of the key things to the fear that this movie can generate is that I think maybe for the first time, the audience that was seeing this movie could really put themselves in the shoes of, who was getting hunted. 
Yeah. And I think what is one of the huge key aspects of Laurie's character, uh, when you look at uh, other kind of girls that followed the archetype, is that Laurie is not remotely puritanical. You know, Laurie has no judgment for any of the things her friends are doing. And in fact, has nothing but envy for, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the kind of shenanigans that Annie and Linda get up to. Mm. No, no, she, I think that people read Lori, uh, uh, in an inaccurate way. It's, it's not that kind of virginal kind of like, oh, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm married. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like jealousy in some ways. She, she, that's the thing. She wants, you know, she wants to go to the dance with Ben Tramer. She mm -hmm. wants all this stuff. It's just not happening. And uh, there's a great um, book in the Devil's Advocate series on Halloween by, I think, Murray Leader that calls Laurie a cross-generational heroine, which I think is really really accurate. Part of the endearing thing about her babysitting and her spending so much of the movie with Tommy and Lindsay is that there's this really interesting quality to Laurie in that she is not... You know, she's very interested in being a teenager and being on the cusp of adulthood. But there is all these kind of almost childhood interests of hers that still remain that she is sort of torn between being a kid and being an adult. And she represents a really interesting middle ground uh, in that respect. I I agree 100 percent. I mean, you hear her at one point when... You know, there's some of the, the some of the act. It's a little bit cringeworthy at times, but she has that line like the old Girl Scout comes through again, and it's like not many typical high school senior young women are going to see themselves in that role. Like she really sees herself as like kind of the dead mother, not just for Tommy and Lindsay, but kind of also like an almost motherly role for Annie and Linda as well even as she's kind of jealous of the fact that they're going out and having dates and having a good time and she's stocking away babysitting money. Yeah. Almost in a a negative sense, you know, she does say that, uh, but it's, it's the way I take it. It's almost like, well, I mean, they're obviously having fun. I'm not going to have fun. So I might as well do this, you Mm -hmm. know? And there, there is, I mean, if, if you look at it, there is a, a sense of kind of, not pride in doing what she does, but kind of like, you know what, if I can't do that stuff, I'll at least own this. And I think that she does take protecting Tommy and Lindsay very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's one of the many things that really just stands out about that character when, you know, in real life. And that's another thing. I'm God, I keep saying this. So I apologize. But uh, another thing that I liked about David Gordon Green's film, the character of Dave we th- he is set up to where you think he's going to run out the the house when all the shit hits the fan you know mm-hmm. he sees you know he runs in the kid runs out basically saying don't go up there and he has the choice to do what almost every other character would have done in the other halloween films leave he does but he what he does is what lori would have done he grabs yeah. the knife and he basically runs for it and i i think that that applies to lori in the first film she's scared and she not only fights for her life, but she fights so hard just to protect those kids. And I think that's what makes that character even that much more great for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's so much that can be read just um, in terms of the personifications of Boogeyman. I think there's a really interesting um, uh, I think engraving by uh, by Francisco Goya from like the, the late 1700s 
that is one of the earliest kind of artistic depictions of the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And it is this boogeyman is this thing in a shroud. So you don't see any physical details of what it actually looks like. It's just a shape uh, that is attacking a young woman who is standing in front of two children. And this piece of artwork like is Halloween to me. It's amazing yeah. that one of the earliest depictions of the boogeyman is like so directly translated into Carpenter's film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I think that speaks on again how uh, how much of an attention to detail that Carpenter and Heel had. Uh, I think a lot of people initially, before it took off, kind of discounted Halloween as being yet another throwaway uh, horror film. But I think that they were inspired by a lot of that stuff that you're mentioning. Uh, inspired by, like we all said, you know, the the relatability to you know, babysitting and that kind of stuff. And I think it was just the perfect combination of influences from previous culture, art, mythology, that kind of stuff uh, applied to, you know, present day 1978. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just lost you there for a little second. My apologies. Make a note of that on here. Give me one second. Or is one hour 14 in. Okay, I'll edit that part. So far, we've needed no edits, so... Okay. okay. Um, I'm curious. Uh, you know, it is kind of like my holy grail. Uh, I refuse to read a, a PDF or a digital copy of it. Uh, I have never been able to find a copy of the novelization, uh, and I'm sure, Nat, that you own that. I, I'm kinda, I do. I'm kind of curious the differences or... Uh, what scenes or what part of Halloween was maybe extended in the novel? Uh, yeah, I've read the novelization several times, including uh, just just a couple months ago. So it's really fresh in my memory. Um, and what I think is fascinating about it is that it is also it is explicitly supernatural. A lot of the DNA for Curse of Michael Myers famously starts in the novelization. But mm-hmm. one of the things I love about it is that it doesn't actually really start adapting the film until about halfway through. Like wow. that's how much uh, backstory there is. Cause you, you don't even just pick up with the opening scene. You pick up with a, a Celtic prologue uh, the, in which this other tragedy occurred that is, you know, almost implied to have kind of echoed through the centuries uh, that, you know, either this is some, some horrible incident that keeps coming back or that this was some manifestation of evil that got into, uh, got into a young man starting then and has continued, uh, down, down through the centuries because, uh, it actually picks up just before Michael goes trick or treating rather than him coming back from trick or treating. So there's this notion that he's been hearing voices that he's been having dreams and his grandmother is terrified when his mother tells him about this because his grandfather had uh, was implied to have a lot of these same issues. Uh, and so then, it's a familial thing in the novelization. Well, uh, almost a familial thing in uh, the 
the the fact that and this evil that kind of keeps repeating, but not in who Michael is after or targeting. I mean, it okay. almost kind of plants some of the seedlings for the cult of Thorn. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. literally a, a Celtic um, kind of spirit, if not mm-hmm. directly curse. Uh, but it's also, you know, there's, you know, probably like 40 pages of, uh, of t- that 15 years in Smith's Grove. Oh, wow. Uh, which does is it amazing. Go, does it go into Loomis uh, trying to counsel him? Yeah, and there's also a comic book, uh, the first Halloween comic book from 2000, that also uh, I think was very inspired by the novelization that was all about uh, that time between Loomis and Michael and Smithgrove that was, you know, doing a lot of art therapy. Both that comic and the novelization have Loomis first trying to gauge... Um, Michael's awareness by mm-hmm. having him draw draw pictures of of his family and of trying to draw pictures of what happened. Uh, and there's also the fact that in that 15 years, when Loomis son starts to become aware that Michael is is this evil uh, force, is this supernatural thing as much if not more than he is a human child is that Michael's, because none of the other staff believes this, Michael starts to get away with a lot. Mm. In what way? I would love to hear, like, in what, what does he get away with? Uh, there, are, there are murders, there are disappearances, there are incidents that, you know, have to be accidents, but he knows aren't accidents. And there's this great sequence in that, in which, uh, because nobody else believes that there's any danger to Michael, because he's so catatonic and he's so unaware, is that they decide to have a Halloween party. And they're <laughs> like, we're, we're going to have a Halloween party for the kids. And this is you know, years into it. He hasn't done anything since that original crime. And Loomis is like, you people are out of your fucking minds. And this is the comic book or the, uh, the this is actually this this particular scene is in both the comic book and the novelization. See, this to uh, me is fascinating in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you... uh, uh, Curtis, Curtis Richards, okay. uh, wrote the original okay. novelization, which was it, actually uh, an, a not subtle anagram for uh, a literary agent named Richard Curtis. Ah. Uh, and, you know, Jerry, you mentioned how, you know, Rob Zombie's Halloween doesn't do it for you for a number of reasons, the majority of which are really that first 20 minutes when you see, you know, Michael coming from a broken home and a broken background and like, look at this terrible hand that he's been dealt. Of course, he turned into a psychopath. But I think I would have loved to have seen a movie if you're going to redo Halloween from the point of view of like Michael's time in the asylum and uh, Dr. Loomis's time in the asylum, really watching Loomis become more aware. I think yeah. that would be a fascinating. So again, just like the original Halloween is not really a Michael Myers movie as much as it is a Dr. Loomis movie, a movie from the point of view of watching Loomis, having that realization grow and then dawn on him and then watch it. That yeah. seed of doubt fester would have been like a very fascinating thing. I yeah. feel like oh. if Halloween had come out today in 2019, I think a year later we would have gotten a prequel. Yeah, because we live in that we live in that day and age where 
you know, everyone needs that explanation. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, that's kind of where I find the charm in the original is that it doesn't do that. I mean, yes. it, it, I think it's fascinating to read, you know, perhaps like the novel or, uh, you know, the, the comic book uh, that Nat's mentioning. And that's great. But as far as mm-hmm. the film itself, I, I almost feel like we don't need that because it takes away it takes away from the fear that we have watching it. If we know everything, you know what I mean? If we know and we see everything, what's there to fear other than like we're just watching the journey of someone become that? I think that's why I really enjoyed Malevolence, uh, Stephen Minnett's film, is that like Halloween, it didn't really give you that much as far as backstory. I mean, the sequ- the two sequels for, to Malevolence definitely did, and that mm-hmm. kind of took away from, I think, the, the power of the original. But Halloween, like, I, I think it's perfect not giving you that. See, yeah. I came I came to the Malevolence trilogy almost backwards. Like I saw Bereavement oh. first and it played at the New York City Horror Film Fest. I want to say in 2010 or 2009 is when I got to see it and the cast and crew were there and I had never even heard of Malevolence to this point and I thought Bereavement played perfect as just a standalone movie. Without any, I, I did not know any of the backstory to it. And then years later, got to visit Malevolence, and I thought that movie is the closest thing to recapturing the spirit of John Carpenter's Halloween to anything oh, I've yeah. seen in a slasher movie since. Malevolence mm-hmm. is one of my five favorite slasher films of all time. It's I a, love Malevolence. It's a fantastic movie. I think the difference in what you're saying is like have in terms of having everything spelled out. I think when you come to Halloween. He comes in that first scene as a fully formed killer from the yeah. get go. So you never see Michael outside of you don't. It's not like the Star Wars prequels where you see everything that led to Darth Vader going from being a cutesy little kid on the front of cereal boxes saying, yeah. "Oops, did I shoot down that Death Star?" To you know, like the living embodiment of evil. You don't get every mediocre step in between like i don't think a halloween prequel would have a like michael myers going to dr loomis i don't like sand it gets everywhere moment in it um this i think is more about loomis's realization if you played if you i think you're right if you did everything like let's watch michael become evil that's not necessarily a story that i want to see like who cares but i think watching uh, watching the person who is most closely tied to him come to that realization. I think that's a hero's journey that I'd be fascinated to follow. I've always wanted to make a short film where basically this man is really nervous, full of anxiety uh, Mm -hmm. for no reason. Uh, And basically he's in his kitchen sitting down kind of by himself, kind of like upset, full of anxiety, gets his coffee and eventually at the end of the short, you know, go, talking kind of on the phone to somebody about something at the end of the short, basically grabbing his trench coat to go transport Michael Myers. Like, you know, I'd, I'd love to see basically Loomis dealing with stuff minus mm-hmm. Michael Myers completely. If, if I ever had a backstory or a film in the Halloween kind of like world, I'd like to see Loomis without Michael Myers in it, because I think the character in, it, in its, himself is so interesting because this is somebody who spent a chunk of their life trying to reach somebody mm-hmm. and the rest of his life up until his death in the films mm-hmm. trying to stop mm-hmm. it. I think that's just yeah. as interesting as Michael Myers is. 
And I love that idea. I love this idea of watching, maybe watching Loomis interact with other patients, maybe watching him interact with his peers. And as he, you know, winds his day down where Michael is the next on his docket, watching that sense of anxiety and that sense of dread grow in him and how that colors his interactions with everyone leading up to it. I think that would be a fascinating character study. Yeah. Yeah. And that sequence in the novelization is just a great set piece because, Mm -hmm. you know, when it gets to like that Halloween party years into their time together, he knows and he knows what a stupid idea this is. And he knows, even though Michael's catatonic, even though Michael, you know, is harmless, they all say, like, he knows something horrible is going to happen. So he mm-hmm. has his he has his eye on Michael, like, the whole night. And mm-hmm. the power goes out for, like, five seconds. And by the time the power comes back on, a girl has been drowned bobbing for apples. Mm-hmm. And it's just <laughs> that. In that one second that he can't keep his eye on him, somebody mm-hmm. dies. Yeah. That's perfect. I, you know, I keep referencing Rob Zombie's Halloween saying, well, you know, I don't like it, but there, (laughs) there is a moment in that film that I think kind of speaks on the first film. And that's in Danny Trejo's character. Mm -hmm. And that's basically, he looks through the door, the little window in the door and starts talking to Michael, basically telling him that, you know, he knows about being within walls too, you know, referring to prison, basically, he just had to look past those walls and look to something else. And it's just like, as a character, it's so interesting to think of Michael Myers basically just sitting there waiting for Mm -hmm. the moment where he feels led to leave, you know? And like, I I find it so just interesting just to think about that. You know, I, I often find myself thinking about, stuff in films that, you know, have nothing to do with the actual film itself. Like, you know, Loomis going about his day, kind of what, you know, he would feel. Or, you know, like I'm saying, Michael just sitting there waiting. Like, you know, I don't want to see that in the original Halloween because I think it's perfect. Right, just the, exactly. I, just, the, I, just the idea of waiting all those years for that urge to lead him to go back to Haddonfield, I think is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I... Another thing I think that I've never really seen get talked about that I think the novelization does brilliantly is note that Loomis has a family. Like mm-hmm. Loomis has a wife and Loomis has a teenage son who he is aware that he's, you know, not communicating with. Like he has sacrificed everything. Truly, he's sacrificed his relationship with his family to this obsession because he knows what Michael is capable of if he if he doesn't. Well, there's almost that moment in uh, Halloween six uh, where, you know, Loomis is kind of comfortable being retired. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's kind of finally comfortable. He's writing his memoirs, which, God, I'd love to read those. But, uh, you know, he's he's finally come to terms with a whole life devoted to Michael Myers. And he's kind of over it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, and and like any other good character that's over shit, like fucking Michael Corleone in Godfather Three, you know, he just gets pulled back. Yeah, and I, I think that that's such a, and you know, I wish that Loomis would have, I wish Loomis would have got a better send off, but I do think it's tragic that the character finally comes to terms with the life that he chose to live, 
you know, basically losing everything, Yeah, you know, and having to go back into that life, you know, I, I, I find it incredibly just tragic for that character. Yeah. And I, I do like his, uh, I do actually like his arc in six quite a bit because like you said, he was out and he was done and he was finally at peace and ready to die an old man. And instead he has to do this shit again. Well, it's interesting because I mean, the character, whether he wants to or not, he's forever tied to Michael Myers. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's kind of like, in, I might be the only person making this reference, but it's kind of like the Batman Joker uh, relationship in the Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, no, they're, like the, they're destined to do this forever. Yeah, th- like one is not uh, himself without the other. Yeah. And I, I find that so incredibly just enthralling. Yeah, there was also a great um, Halloween kind of uh, novella called called Sam that was basically about Loomis's life. Uh, and, and it was kind of because a lot of the comics in the 2000s were in, set in the H2O timeline. Yeah. Uh, it was about Loomis's kind of retirement uh, and knowing that Michael was still out there after Halloween 2. And there was this great scene uh, in which after Loomis has a heart attack, Mm-hmm. He wakes up in the hospital and he is just aware before uh, even seeing the room around him that Michael is in the room with him. Mm. And it's literally like Michael goes to see him in the hospital. Well, there's even that moment in uh, Halloween autopsies. Do you yeah. remember that one? Yeah. Where basically this photographer is obsessed with all that stuff, c- capturing that perfect moment. And, you know, he starts following Loomis. And then there's that that part in the in the comic for Autopsis where Loomis just yells, basically, "Why do you keep following me?" And the photographer thinks he's talking to him yes, until he realizes exactly. that Michael Myers is right behind him. And yeah. it's just that relationship. And even in Halloween Five, there are so many situations where Michael could have just easily taken care of Loomis, mm-hmm. like in the woods after Tina gets killed. Michael's standing there. All the cops are gone. It's just Loomis basically talking to Michael in the woods, shouting, you know, or or in the gas station of Halloween four. There's so yeah. many moments in the series where Michael could very easily kill Loomis, but they're forever tied. And I almost feel like Michael just kind of functions on that chase at times. Yeah. And it's also I think Michael wants. I think Michael wants Loomis around to know that he can't stop it. Yeah. I think he wants Loomis to live with this and to be aware of it. And even in that novella, when he goes to see Loomis in the hospital, it's almost like a sweet moment for a second, just thinking, oh, oh, Michael just kind of came to check up on him. But it's also, you know, this is the H2O timeline. This is years after uh, Halloween 2. Uh, he sees that there's something like spelled out on the floor in blood. And this is Loomis, you know, as an old man post heart attack where he kind of has my, he sees Michael standing in the room and he looks down and he sees uh, spelled out in blood is the name Carrie Tate. So what it actually is, is that Michael wanted Loomis to know before he died that he found Lori. Jesus. See, I think my problem with the interpretation of that, of like this 
connection with Loomis and Michael more and Michael's it's really Loomis and all the movies is the one hunting down Michael. I, I do like this interpretation in the first movie and in David Gordon Green's movie of the shape, not really caring about and having any connection to yeah. anybody else. He's just, he's the shark in jaws. He's just this force of nature. One of my favorite moments in the David Gordon Green movie is that single take unbroken shot of Michael trapezing through the neighborhood and then going mm-hmm. house to house on a killing spree. And what it is, is the look of a person who is a kid in a candy store. He's like, I have not been able to do what I've wanted to do for 40 years. And now there's absolutely nothing standing in my way. And it's almost Michael as he's gleeful at that point, yes. at that moment, because he's unencumbered at that point. And I like this idea of, a shape that doesn't really care about anything except killing. He doesn't care about Loomis. It's almost like, who is this person that keeps coming in after me at this point? Almost like there's no recognition or no, if there's recognition, there's almost no regard for him at that point. Um, almost well, like you- the, the Patrick Hawksetter from it. Um, the novelization, you know, where Patrick Hawksetter believes he is the only real thing in the universe. Right. And everything else is just a figment of his imagination. Well, there's almost that that I mean, there's also that scene at the end of the first film. You know, Michael's basically trying to strangle Laurie to death. Loomis walks in, shoots him. Michael doesn't even Michael doesn't even pretend to try to escape. He's just standing there almost like begging Loomis, okay, do what you're gonna do, yeah. you know, and it's 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 scary to yeah. this day. I mean, it is pure evil. Just saying, do whatever you're gonna do. I'm going nowhere, you know. Yeah. And, and I, think I, the, I, yeah, go okay. ahead. No, well, I I was done. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, I think the idea of of being able to read Michael as as that kind of gleeful almost trickster is something that's huge in the original to me too, where you can Mm -hmm. almost read Michael as basically a spiritual incarnation of the holiday itself. Yeah. Michael is chaos. Michael is, you know, he's popping up. He's, he's far more interested in scaring people in the original Halloween than he is in killing them. He has a very low body count. He spends more time setting up the the pranks and the scares than he does the actual mm-hmm. kill. Yeah, you know? I, I think that's huge in that he's literally setting up a walkthrough haunted house for Laurie to walk through at the end of the film. And, mm-hmm. you know, most of what he's doing is, you know, in essence, his own fucked up version of trick-or-treating. He's put on a mask, he's come to the neighborhood, and he's going from house to house. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a feeling of a child in there still. Yeah. You know, as a kid, it was my favorite thing to do to just fuck with people. You know what I mean? Like as a kid, you're kind of driven by that. I want to scare my friends. I want to be a little brat kind of. And I'm not saying Michael Myers is walking around saying like, I want to be a brat. But in a lot of ways, he kind of is. Yeah. You know, he he is enjoying watching Annie. You know, it's only when it's only when the dog tries to potentially mess things up that Michael's like, Okay, well, you're you're dead now, dog. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, it's there's just the way that Michael just looms in the shadows. 
He likes watching people. He kind of, I, I feel like the character of Michael Myers enjoys that feeling that the person gets thinking somebody's behind them. Yes. You know, yes. he could have very well and very easily went into Lori's house and killed her instead of just standing by the laundry. You know, mm-hmm. like it is very much more about the hunt than it is to the kill. And I think that's where a lot of the sequels got it wrong. Yeah, it's also he's such a, a showman in the original Halloween, too, because everything he he's doing is not just voyeurism, but he's doing it to be seen. He's staging himself across the street so that you'll see him out the window. You know, he'll he has that elaborate, you know, and it's all like planned because he's he's very smart kind of entity in that he takes the headstone so that he can set it up with a with a body in front of it and a pumpkin beside it that I would like to imagine he carved himself uh, uh, for Lori to you know, for Lori to discover at the end of the film. Well there's even that playfulness in 2018's film. Mm-hmm. I mean he not only kills Chris Nelson's character, but he carves his head into a pumpkin. Yep. You know? Like he hides he hides, uh, you know, Allison's dad with the, you know, the bells around him, kind of like what he did to Linda in the first film. I think in a lot of ways, his kind of MO is the same. He still enjoys doing that. Yeah. I mean, even even uh, Jenny Gardner's character. I mean, she's very much set up kind of like somebody in the first film would, you know, with, with the, the sheet over her holding the pumpkin. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think in the other films they lost sight of that. You know, as much as I love Halloween four, you know, Michael Myers sitting there in a rocking chair and stabbing someone with a shotgun really isn't that playfulness and that kind of like devilish, uh, kind of MO that Michael had in the first film. And I think that that's one of the things that makes it so scary is that this deviant, this random person who is led by evil enjoys it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just a gut reaction It's there's enjoyment in the game. Mm-hmm. Well, I think too. There's like you had, had said, like there's almost like he's a child, and the child is not always fully aware of the consequences of his actions. So, to Michael, you can almost in- interpret this reading of it as someone that doesn't realize when he stabs someone that they're not going to get back up after, that this is all a big joke or a big prank, and everyone is in on it with him, and he doesn't really fully comprehend what he's doing and you know you could see that maybe in the way he examines his handiwork when he pins bob to the wall and he has that iconic kind of head roll at that point almost like he's waiting like hey get up like i'm waiting for you to start moving again yeah i think that's a really fun and interesting way to kind of read the character of michael myers much more so to your to your point jerry much more so than what you get later on which is basically just someone killing for the sake of killing well what i think is great is in the whole series you get three films where michael myers has the same kind of vibe in the first film, the second film, and 2018's, mm-hmm. Michael has that kind of youthful thing, like you're saying, where you don't kind of realize anything. Mm-hmm. In 2018's, he's walking around the city without a care in the world, mm-hmm. wearing the same mask that people would, you know, should recognize. I mean, that's yeah. how they kind of find him so easily after Allison gets in the car. He's just walking around. Yeah, exactly. In the second, in the second film, he's walking downtown. You know, on his way to the hospital, 
you know, he he's on all of the surveillance stuff at the hospital. You know, like there is that kind of he is led by evil, but there is nothing else. You know, he he's not worried about like being in the shadows. I mean, in the first film, Tommy sees Michael just walking in the street, carrying Annie's body to the front of the door, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And I I think that that I think that's when the series is at its best is when we get that portrayal of Michael Myers as this unstoppable force that has no feelings about being Mm -hmm. in the shadows and that evil is front and center yeah i definitely definitely read it to me as you know it's not that michael isn't aware of the consequences of his action i think it's that he's intimately aware and has proven to himself uh especially by the 2018 film over and over that the consequences don't mean shit Mm -hmm. He, he he knows that he's going to get away with this. And I think that's also such a key factor in, you know, oh, why does Michael always walk instead of running when he is perfectly capable of running? It's that, you know, you might get away. He doesn't give a shit. He'll keep he'll going. after you 40 years later. Yeah, he'll, he'll take however long it needs. He is the most patient killer in movie history. And that, I think, is so scary to me. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, and I do think that the, what you see, and like, let's talk about consequences for a moment. I, I want to shift gears a little bit on this. Is one of the criticisms of Halloween and John Carpenter is that what this movie ushered in is an era of films where characters are punished for indulging in vices. That this is where Halloween is credited for. The virginal girl is the one that lives in the end and the characters that partake in sex, that do drugs, that maybe are a little bit more snarky than others or become cannon fodder um, for your killer. I don't really buy into that interpretation at all. I don't think that the fact that Lori's a virgin is what saves her at the end. Um, I just think it's her smarts and her resourcefulness and her kind of sense of self-preservation is what yes. really carries the day. And that sells her short to say it's only because, you know, because she did have, like you had said, Jerry, all the same interests as her friends. I mean, she even partakes in smoking a little doobie with Annie when they're driving around. I don't think that it's the lack of sex that saves her. I feel like Lori would be having sex if she mm-hmm. could. Yeah. You know, yes, and yeah. I think that that's I think that's a read that people kind of unfairly put on those films. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, a lot of that. It lies in the like a lot of the fault lies in those films for embracing that instead of you know I don't feel like Carpenter had that in his head whatsoever you know what I mean it just mm-hmm. happened to be that the other girls around right. Lori were more popular were easier you know I, I don't I've never been able to subscribe to that belief and I think that it it again goes back to John Car- why John Carpenter is John Carpenter and all of these movies that came in the wake of Halloween were not made by the John Carpenters of the world. They took like the wrong lessons from some of these movies. Like they took the wrong lessons overall from Halloween in terms of they really amplify the violence and amplify these character traits Um and make it just less interesting in the end than what Carpenter was able to do. And even Carpenter falls victim to it in Halloween 2, which we're going to talk about next time, because he 
in the wake of all these really popular slasher movies, looked at the Rick Rosenthal cut and said, it's not violent enough, it's not sexy enough, we're going to get creamed at the box office if we release it like this. I I agree 100%. I mean, Halloween 2, I think as fun as it can be, uh, I mean, it is very much Carpenter uh, having a six-pack or two in his system. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that's what he said. It's like, I didn't have an idea for a sequel, but, you know, and Carpenter, to his, to his benefit, to his credit, has always been very much like, I'm here to get paid. Like, you want to remake one of my movies, I'm going to stick my hand out. You're going to write me a check that's going to have some zeros in it, and then you can do whatever the hell you want with it. Not a problem at all. My movie is still going to stand. He's mm-hmm. always been a commercial artist first. And... You know, he so he was like, I did not have any ideas for Halloween two, but I know what I had an idea about. I have an idea that I didn't make enough money for Halloween one, given that it turned in forty seven million dollars. Like, and I made, I think he made ten grand directing it. So he's, I'm sure, is shit going to get paid for this next one, and I'll put whatever you want on screen at that point. You bet. Cannot blame him for that. Mm-hmm. Hey, I also think that, I mean, aside from being in my opinion, the greatest film of all time. I I appreciate Halloween for the fact that that film helped us really get uh, what I think is the greatest filmmaker of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, if if Halloween played a part in Carpenter's success, then you know what? I love it even more. I mean, this week, I, this week I interviewed John Carpenter about writing a Joker comic book. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, how cool is that? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's awesome that he wanted to have such a good career. And now, like, years later, we're getting more Halloween films where he's mm-hmm. actually involved now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's I just I think Halloween brought so much to not only the horror genre, but to us fans. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like it's the gift that keeps giving. And I, I seriously think it's the best film of all time. Well, I think like Nick Castle just said at a convention, he's like, look, I don't talk to John as much as I used to. But, you know, when I do, I can tell you, like, his interests right now are like playing video games, watching basketball and just doing what he wants to do. Like he's earned that kind of retirement and he's earned Mm -hmm. the ability. Like I, I, you know, I would be interested to know, Jerry, if you ask, like, do you have one more in you? Like, do you ever get this itch to get behind the camera again? Do you think you have one more, at least one more movie in you? And I would be really fascinated to know his answer to that. Or if he's completely content with his body of work as it stands right now. And he's like, "Nah, I'm good playing video games and just watching b-ball. You know, I asked 100 percent having to do with the comic and video games just because I I think Mm -hmm. he gets asked that a lot. But I mean, even recently he mentioned, I I think I could be wrong because I remember reading something where he said maybe if, you know, if the project was right. Yeah, Yeah. because Mm -hmm. now, you know, it's not like the old days now, you know, budgets are so small. It's hard making anything uh, made. And look at the last time Carpenter made a movie, you know, The Ward. The ward was crucified and people were saying, you know, oh, Carpenter's just relying on this gimmick, this gimmick, not mm-hmm. no, not realizing that he kind of created a lot of those, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think maybe if like a 24 or like a studio like that, that's kind of embraceive of of kind of the auteur kind of thing would give Carpenter, a, you know, a shot. 
I think that would be perfect, but I don't want to see John Carpenter. I'm fine with him never making another film mm-hmm. unless yep. it's to make it how he wants to make it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think dude, the, the, the albums, the comics, the video yeah. games, I mean, that's more than enough. Like lost yeah, themes is great. Yeah. He's mm. still out there for sure. And I think, uh, yeah, he's my favorite director. And I love, you know, his filmography is incredible because there's such a stylistic sameness across an incredible, diverse group of genres and topics. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, you know, the, quest- the question that really haunts me in terms of Car- Carpenter's filmography is like, as good as it is, what would it have looked like if the thing had been commercially successful? Right. You know, would he have been making genre films still or, you know, would he have moved on? Because to me, the thing is Carpenter's best movie. As much as I love Halloween and I love Halloween, the thing is his masterpiece. And I think the thing is in my big three of like all time favorite movies. It's one of the three movies in my all time top three overall. He did branch out. I mean, look at a film like Starman, oh, which yeah, he, is a, it's another film that I consider just like one of the best of all time. Like, I think it's it's the the most purest example of just human emotion. Like that film is so innocent and it's just beautiful. And it's like I, I wish Carpenter would have done more like that. But I do think that the kind of misses at the box office definitely did help. Carpenter stay mostly within the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they eventually, uh, he's, I think been pretty candid about it too, are what drove him away from the industry in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chevy Chase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That too, but yeah. It's just the, you know, the, the opinions and the people and it's, it's a lot of, you know, once you stop being into it and dealing with those kinds of people, it's so much to take. You know, I don't. Well, that, every few years, there's a new breed. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like there, there was that interview a few years back that Carpenter did with with uh, Ryan Turpic for Shock Till You Drop. You know, where he basically said that you know he kept going to those Masters of Horror dinners. And after a while, I mean, there were some of those people that were kind of up their own asses. So Carpenter finally just said, you know what, have it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you know, and yeah. I think the best quote from that entire conversation is where he's just like, you know, Darren Aronofsky that secretly hates horror films, you know, Eli Roth with his Hollywood hair. Just have it. <laughs> yeah, I I really think that uh, it's actually amazing that the thing was a career ender that didn't kill his career that, you know, he already had that second win because he didn't let that happen. He got fired off his next movie and he still kept making the kinds of movies he wanted to make, you know, despite having a situation like the, the commercial failure of the thing to me is like the same question as like, what would Spielberg's career have looked like if E.T. had bombed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, totally. Well, I think in the case of Spielberg though, because he, dealt in fantasy rather than horror movies, he could have gone back and just made like another Indiana Jones movie. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it would necessarily would be a career ender because he was dealing more in like fantasy and kid fare where sometimes if you're known as the horror guy and you bomb in that genre, then that is all she wrote for you at that point or could be all she wrote for you. Well, the, the thing was a huge major studio science fiction. Of course. Too. Of course. I mean, it was the first of, I remember, like a three-picture deal that was supposed to lead to bigger budgets, bigger projects, more scope. And then as soon as the thing crashed and burned, it was pretty much he was stuck back into doing lower-budget pictures again. And that was he wasn't going to be offered a tentpole type of picture. And the thing, yeah. If the thing had hit, I mean, you could have seen like John Carpenter maybe do like a movie like a Batman later in the decade. Like maybe he would have gotten a crack at it over like a Tim Burton if his career trajectory was different. I think it's really amazing how uh, you are a true testament to him as a filmmaker that Christine is a top five Carpenter for me, despite being a job he had to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very much about the money and to keep himself relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's so interesting. And I also find it interesting that, like, some of his best movies were ones that people just hated initially. You know, yeah, Halloween, after a while, after word of mouth came out, and it was a big hit. But, I mean, it got pretty bad reviews at first. I mean, yeah, nobody people, knew it was a hit. Nobody it's- liked Big Trouble in Little China until, like, home video, basically. You know, yeah, or people, the thing people were wrong for like twenty years, right? Right? <laughs> or like you know, Prince of Darkness. That's always been my second favorite John Carpenter movie. But as a kid, I I I had to fight, like basically verbally fight people about that movie. And it, it, it you know now you get like you know repertory screenings at the church, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for Prince of Darkness and all this stuff. It's and, you know, I was at a convention once and Carpenter was this this moderator guy was going over every Carpenter movie, movie by movie. And finally, like two or three in, Carpenter was kind of frustrated. And he said, yeah, you know, it's basically the same story. Nobody liked it. Years later, they think it's great. Can we move on? Yeah. Let's do some questions. You know, like I think at this point, he's kind of annoyed with that history of like, why put himself out there again to d- basically do the same thing? Yeah. Put his energy into a film. People are going to trash it. Maybe years down the road, enjoy it when he could be making really great albums and touring with his son and his godson or being yep. at home watching basketball or video games or Completely. writing a comic, writing a comic book with the writer of Borderlands. You know what I mean? Well, like Carpenter's not collaborating with his like video game heroes. But I think even too, like his fingerprints are all over the Halloween 2018 movie. Yeah, there were stories. Um, you know, he was telling like the David Gordon Green wanted to kind of recreate the ending of the first movie. Uh, and that's like Laurie's bedroom or one of the rooms in Laurie's house is basically a recreation of Tommy's house. And Carpenter was like, why do you want to do that? Like, that's a really bad idea to redo this ending and let let it be. And it is like, let's not change anything from that. Like, no, like audiences are going to go with you on this ride. That's not what they want to see. Like he had still a lot of creative input on the new movie. Like his words was very well respected. So and I, was, think that, I think that's one of the things that that gets me so excited about the newer movies is that we finally have Carpenter back in a creative way mm-hmm. in the Halloween series. You know, mm-hmm. he does kind of have that kind of overseer mentality. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
I loved David Gordon Green's film, but if we would have gotten that original idea where redo the end of the first one and have Michael kill Loomis on the balcony, mm-hmm. like, no, you know what I mean? Like, I, I love that we have Carpenter there to kind of steer it in the right direction. And God, the score, right? that guy mm-hmm. still has it. You know, like, yeah, we're going to have a whole episode on, you know, the, the music of, of Halloween and we're going to talk to some mm-hmm. people involved. But the, the score to Halloween, I think, is 80 percent, maybe 70 percent of what makes that film work. It's terrifying. And it's also, in my opinion, the most recognized piece of music of all time. Mm-hmm. It's up there. I mean, it's one of the most recognized. It's probably the most recognized, maybe aside from Jaws the most recognizable theme song in genre film overall. Um, I personally think the most haunting and terrifying piece of music from the whole movie is The Shape Lurks. That simple, like, da-da sound over, and then the keys come in with this really staccato beat. And, like, to me, like, that gets my heart racing even more so than the theme song every time I hear it. Like, that to me is a real terrifying piece of music. Yeah, it's amazing to listen to the score. So the score is something for the original, especially it's something you can just put on at any time. And I think when you isolate the score by itself, it's fascinating to really think about just how many times in the original movie uh, the theme plays mm-hmm. because it's a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have that. You have the little stingers that play over and over again with every. With, you know, with every kind of beat and every moment, but that is what adds to the terror. Like it makes the, it's one of the things that the score is so smartly implemented. It makes you as an audience member, pay attention. It's not just there to get you to jump out of your seat, but it's there to make you sit up and pay attention because you know, something scary is about to happen. And that I love it. It helps really create that anticipation and that, excuse me, dread that the film is so good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I agree a hundred percent. It's it's just it. I think it's such a an important uh, element to what makes the film work. And you know, Carpenter Carpenter made one of the most iconic scores for that film. And mm-hmm. I I loved that. You know, as the films went on, Alan Howarth really took that torch and ran with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, nope, there's absolutely no argument there. And even like. It's not like a Harry Manfredi thing where I love the Friday the 13th score. And I think there are subtle changes to some of it, some of the scores. But by and large, it kind of repurposes itself. Mm-hmm. Halloween and Halloween 2 have similar motifs and it's they're recognizable, but they're played completely differently. Um, and it's Carpenter never really resting on his laurels and really you can see how important composing was to him overall and how that really drove him because it, Halloween 2 is that first score just amplified tenfold overall. And I think it fits the kind of movie that Halloween 2 is, which is really Halloween Redux just cranked up to 11 at that point to more fit in with its times. Yeah, and I, th- I think the unsung heroes, for sure, of the immediate Halloween sequels were uh, Alan Howarth and Dean Cundy. Mm-hmm. I think Halloween 2 is a much lesser film without uh, Dean Cundy. 
Absolutely. I think the fact that it gets its reputation because it can be played, because it is a continuation of the first movie, and not only is it a continuation, but it mimics that look. Um, that's why you get what you get. There, You don't have the same memory, and we're going to talk about it next time, but the characters aren't nearly as memorable in this movie. Laurie Strode is sidelined throughout the movie. We've barely talked about Laurie in this episode and we're two hours in at this point, I think, you know, she's going to, I think we're going to maybe get more into why she's such a great character in the coming weeks ahead. Yeah. So what else do we have to say right now? Cause we are about two hours in and what else do we have to say? I'm sure Nat, you probably have 30 pages of notes. We never got to. Um, yeah, we, we, we covered a lot. We covered a, a lot about, uh, why I love this film mm-hmm. and, uh, what makes it so unique. And I actually think mm-hmm. I like Halloween two a bit more than either one of you, but, oh, uh, I enjoy the movie. It's a fun movie, but it's a lesser of the two. It's not, a, I enjoy yeah. it. I enjoy it. If you take the sister angle out, that is mm-hmm. the, the biggest bane of my existence in life. Mm-hmm. Like well, so much. I but think, other than uh, that, I like what it. thing. What's the people forget? Uh, with how little that movie's in there, it's like you can go to the bathroom at the wrong moment and take the sister angle yeah, out. Of that absolutely, movie. yeah. The thing too is, if you take the sister angle out, you still have a great hospital. <laughs> <laughs> you still have a really good, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, honestly, well, I I think I'm pretty good with what we have. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think we we cover a lot of ground, and I definitely got to. Uh, you know, I feel like Excellent. I spoke my piece about what I I love about this film, which to me same. is the best horror movie ever made in terms of executing perfectly what you set out to do. Yeah. It's really a perfect movie in a lot of ways. And I think what's fascinating is it still holds up 41 years later. And aside from a little bit of nudity, it would be a PG 13 movie. Now it doesn't rely on violence or gore. It relies on tension and atmosphere and, pitch perfect characterization. Um, and it still is one of the most terrifying movies of all time. Yes, definitely. It's yeah. perfect. And if you took Michael Myers out of it, you have a great <laughs> treat movie. You have a great, yeah, right? <laughs> so, well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for our first in many episodes on the Halloween series. This one is going to be a bit of a roller coaster. I think we're going to have some ups and we're going to have some real downs when it comes to talking about this series, looking straight at you, Halloween resurrection and Buster rhymes. Um, but you know, overall, like I think we can agree like of all of the series we're going to cover. If there's a movie that deserves to be a called a classic, it's John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, that, where uh, actually folks- hold on, hold on. Before we get into the net thing, I just want to say one thing to the listeners. I'm not kidding. I seriously. Okay. Halloween Resurrection is going to be tough, really tough. But listeners, I just sent an email before recording this to Buster Rhymes asking him to be on the show to talk about Resurrection. (laughs) So listeners, please bug Buster. Get him on the show. Okay, go ahead. Wow. Okay. I don't know how to follow that at this point. That's <laughs> not how I thought today was going to go. Um, so, Nat, where can where uh, what are you working on, and where can listeners find you right now? Um, listeners can find me on Twitter at Nat Bremer. Um, I'm doing a lot of writing for uh, 
Bloody Disgusting, uh, River Dread Central, uh, got Diabolique Magazine, Ghastly Grinning, uh, just all over the place. Um, I'm currently wrapping up a book on the Puppet Master franchise, and I'm doing a lot of articles and stuff to uh, kind of celebrate its uh, 30th anniversary through the next mm-hmm. week. So I've got a lot of that going on at the moment is really the big thing right now. Excellent. Jerry, how about yourself? I know you have a lot of irons in the fire right now. Yes, it's so exciting. Uh, I have quite a few uh, pieces coming up in the next uh, few issues of Scream Magazine, including a really important tribute to uh, a horror icon that I wrote. Uh, It'll be out, I think, the next issue or the issue after that. Uh, Other than that, uh, working on some secret projects. Uh, in a couple documentaries, uh, there's this new one called Oh, the horror that's, that's going around like so many great people from the horror community are taking part of. I'm so excited to do that. Uh, when I got married this weekend, I filmed, uh, Zach Shillwater's part for the documentary for him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's so many people in that documentary. I'm so excited to do that. Uh, other than that, same place, uh, at Jerry is just okay on Twitter. Uh, one thing that I wanted to say really quick. A lot of our listeners have posted recently about how they enjoy the show and they enjoy uh, the approach to our listeners that Mike and I have. I think it's very important to say we don't have listeners on this show. We have friends. Yeah. Uh, we try to respond to every single one of you, and there will never, ever be a barrier between us and the people that enjoy our show. Please tweet at us, email us, do whatever you need. We're so excited to talk to every mm-hmm. single one of you. Yeah. So. That's and what. we we got some great responses regarding why people love Halloween so much. I just didn't have a chance to bookmark them because we rescheduled uh, recording a yeah. couple times just because our schedules have been kind of crazy. So, you know, we'll probably start the next episode maybe by just going into some of the listener feedback because we really appreciate every comment, every share. Um all the appreciation you guys have shown us like we're still a fairly little show we're growing at a nice little rate here but the fact that we have a dedicated and really cool following of people that are jumping on board uh means a lot to me um it's very humbling um and i think a lot of that credit goes to not just jerry but also like the guests that we've had uh that have shared their time with us we've been very fortunate with some of the guests that we've had um uh, you can find me over at Mike underscore Sanunian and also at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Um, I try to keep the accounts separate from one another, but every now and then my left-leaning politics bleeds in, or my smartassery bleeds into the Pod and Pendulum account as well. Um, as the show posts, I will be boarding a plane to get back from Telluride Horror, which I'm going to be serving as my as one of the hosts for my seventh year now. I'm really excited to fly out there tomorrow and celebrate our 10th year anniversary as a festival. Um, I've been one of the programmers there a few years and a host for seven. Um, yeah, buttons. It means I have buttons. So we'll be have, we're going to be sending some buttons out to people. Uh, we have our first swag and, you know, Jerry and I, you know, we want to do a punk rock episode. We want to maybe cover like the decline of Western civilization. And we're tossing around ideas like how can we do that in a way that allows us to make it worth our time, but also like cover the horror movies that we know that people are coming for. So hopefully in the coming months, we'll have some really cool announcements, more swag and fun stuff like that. Until then, 
Thank you so much for listening to our deep dive to Halloween. I think we brought something different to the table. We hope you guys have enjoyed it. And we'll be back next week with Halloween 2 Electric Boogaloo. And show. All right. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I'm going to so go see fun. my family so they remember what I look like. Nat, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Thank right. you. Anytime right, guys, you want to jump in. All right. Bye-bye.